Good morning, church and friends and everybody else that's watching. Um, I hope you guys sang along with us this morning, especially that last song where um, it's going to be directly applicable to what we're talking about today. But um, I know we've already said this and you're going to hear it a lot, but uh, we miss you. Um, um, I miss walking into Sunday school and hearing Mark May saying, good morning, Austin. And uh, I miss coming to the patio and seeing Bruce's Michigan shirt and Barb's smile. Um, I miss Karsten bumping into me to say hello. And I miss Luke Rudolph taking all the cookies on the table. I miss much, much more. But what I miss most is singing in church with you. I miss walking into the building and hearing unified voices lifting up praise to the Lord. I miss the exaltation of the word preached in person. I miss the Lord's Supper and offering together. I miss it all, and I long for the day that we get to meet. And the same longing that I have for the day we get to meet is a small sense of the longing that we have for the future kingdom. And this week's sermon is met with this, this, this same sense of kingdom, this future kingdom, where we hope to be together. And we're going to be in Matthew 13, and we're going to read through verses 24 through uh, 43. So if you have your Bibles, um, you can follow on the screen, but I encourage you to, to open your Bible today and, and uh, read for yourself as well as I, as I read through it with you. Matthew 13, 24, it starts at the parable of the weeds. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed sowed good seed, and in his field. And while, this man, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to them, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Thus in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them, that both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles and be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seed, but when it has grown, it is, the large, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been, has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out, uh, out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then 
The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. God, we, we're just so thankful that uh, you remind your people what you've given us in your son and also in the future. God, we are so thankful that you give us the opportunity to be a church, even in a time like this. God, I pray that your word is revealed today, God. I pray that they hear what you have to say. God, I pray that we are comforted in knowing that you give us a future hope. And that, God, we can rest in you uh, for eternity as your children of God, of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The parable of the weeds and the parable of the mustard seed and leaven. So, so we're talking about the parable of the weeds and the mustard seed and leaven today. So there's really three stories that, that uh, we're going over. In the parable of the weeds, Jesus tells a story to the crowd of people that had already been talking to, to, to in the last parable that we talked about last week that Dustin preached on in the parable of the sower. It's the same crowd. He tells them about a farmer who sowed good seed in his own field, and after his work was done, his enemy had come and sowed bad seed. When the servants noticed what happened, they came to the farmer and asked him if they wanted to cut down the weeds from the field, and the farmer tells them, no, the weeds and the wheat can't be told apart. The The farmer tells them to let them fully grow, and when they fully grow, then we can separate them. The weeds can go into the fire, and the wheat can go into the barn. So that's the first part in the parable of the weeds, but actually, Jesus explains the parable a little later in Matthew 13, and he goes back into the house, and the disciples follow him, curious to know what he meant. They asked him to explain further. One of the first things Jesus said is that the one who sows the seed is the Son of Man. Now, we've been talking about the Son of Man all throughout Matthew already. The Son of Man is the most common way Jesus describes himself. Usually when he uses the term, or when the term Son of Man is used, it's as a way to separate um, man from God, but actually God uses it to reveal his humanity, but it doesn't negate the fact that he's also God. If we look back to Daniel 7, when Daniel is revealing his dream, which we've talked about already, He says this, I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages which shall not pass away and his his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the first time we see the title son of man used. We can't read this text without noticing this gives divinity to the Son of Man. He isn't any Son of Man. He's one who will reign over his kingdom forever. What we know about Daniel 7 is this isn't any kingdom either, an everlasting kingdom. As we continue to look at this text, we will see that he is the rightful owner, not only of his kingdom, but the kingdom as the field. Now, in the parable of the weeds, Jesus is is compared to a farmer who sowed good seed in his field. And while the farmer was sleeping, his enemies went away and planted bad seed. The good seed turned into wheat, and the bad seed turned into weeds. And this this text is beginning to set the stage for the characters in the story. We have the wheat, and we have the weeds, two separate things. If you know anything about farming or you don't, they're two separate things. Uh, I don't know anything about farming, and I, I just knew that. Uh, What we know from the text at this point is that Jesus says the wheat come from him, 
and the weeds come from the devil. Last week, Dustin talked about the separation between who is planted on the good soil and who is not. In the context of this parable this week, those who are of Christ, who hear his word and believe it, are those who produce wheat. And then we have the ones of the bad seed. That is the ones in, in back in 19, in verse 19, who reject the Lord. And those, those seeds are planted by the devil. They are called the sons of the devil. They are the ones who hear the word and they don't understand it. They turn from it. In scripture, in, in, in the parable, the sower says that the devil snatches them away. And in the same way that these sons of the evil one are described, we see this also in John 8, when he was talking to the Pharisees and says, you are your father, the devil. And again, John 3, 10 states that all who are not of the children of God, they are of the devil. Over and over and over in the book of Matthew, we find that you can't be of Christ and of the devil. You can't serve two masters. There isn't any middle ground here. The Bible is very clear. In fact, the parable even gives a personal aspect to both camps here. If you are of Christ, you are the sons of the kingdom. And if you are of the devil, you are sons of the devil. The implication is that you are tied to those who you serve. And again, during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus tells the crowd, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. I'm sure you all have experienced a similar story in your life where you've worked in a place, or maybe it was your parents, or maybe in school, uh, where you had a lot of bosses. And some bosses didn't communicate with other bosses. I used to work for a company, and in my department, we had about 30 people. And in 30 people, we had four bosses. Um, and often, those bosses didn't communicate well with one another. So on any given day, we could have all four bosses giving you instruction that contradicted one another. It was frustrating because you want to be able to obey your superiors, the people who have given you the job, who are evaluating you. You want to be able to obey them. In actuality, you can't because somebody else who also is supervising you and is leading you is telling you something totally different. They have two different wills. And ultimately, those two types of people mingle in the world together. So not only do we have to serve one master, but we serve one master and we live with the ones that serve the other master. Now, there, there are three aspects to most kingdoms. The first one is the king, which we talked about as the son of man. And people are, are in, in, in the kingdom. We know that there's people in the kingdom, like all king, kingdoms. So we know if the son of, the, of man is the king and there are two different types of people in the kingdom, we should be asking ourselves, what is the kingdom or where is the kingdom? Now, I want to be clear and clear up some uh, misconceptions of this text real quick. Uh, there's often a misunderstanding to what Jesus means when he states the location of the kingdom. The most common wrong interpretation of this passage is to believe that Jesus was in fact referring to the kingdom of heaven as the church and not the world. We go back to the text here in Matthew 13. Drink my smart water real quick. It doesn't make me smarter. Um, it says, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. Because of this brief 
misunderstanding of what the field is, this misunderstanding that the field is the church, those who believe that often reflect on all those who are in their church that are just downright unruly. They begin to think about the people they sit with that cause trouble or the people they see in the courtyard or are angry outside or spreading gossip. They would say that these are the people who cause trouble in your church and don't value unity in the, pe- the body of Christ. Their implications of this, this, this false assumption of this passage is that in actuality, because we don't know their heart, we can't judge them, we can't get rid of them, we can't cast them out. I want to be clear here, early in this sermon, sometimes the devil does sow seeds, bad seeds, in the church. And in those times, the Bible addresses how to deal with them specifically. And it certainly isn't allowing them to do as they please. This text isn't talking about how we need to tolerate unbelievers in our church. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Believing this text says anything about tolerating the actions of believers, unbelievers in the church is to undermine all that the Bible teaches us on church discipline and how to deal with the unruly in the church. We see this as Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5. He hears that there is much disunity going on in the church and sexual immorality in the church. This, is, this craziness causes him to write to the church and remind them how to be, be a church and how to deal with the immoral of the church. And he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. This is strong language. It's telling them to cast it out, cast them out. Why is it telling them to cast him out so they don't spread this immorality in the church? But it doesn't stop there. In verse 5, it says, so that in his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline is a serious aspect of the church, and we have to take it as such. It is a way to restore those who are lost back to Christ. Not a way to abandon those who are immoral. But God, the Lord, will restore what is broken through church discipline. So if you've heard or you assume that the text is talking about the church, just erase it. Erase the thought right now. Get rid of it. We want to be as clear as possible in this text because there's strong implications uh, for you. Matthew 13 is clear. It says the field is the world, not the church. The parable of the weed is instructions on how Christians should live in the world, not tolerance for the world in our church. Now that we have established that there are two different types of people in the world, those who are in Christ and those who are not, Jesus transitions to the parable of the mustard seed here. Let me go ahead and read that for you again. It starts in verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than any of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, though it was all leavened. 
Now, the mustard seed, if you don't know, which I didn't know until I read this text prior, um, is that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, agricultural seeds. Um, and uh, if I was reading correctly, it's the smallest in that area at the time. Um, But what, 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 what the text tells us is that the mustard seed, if you know anything about mustard seeds, it grows to be something big. Not just big, but bigger than all the other, the other uh, greenery in the, the land there. But it also becomes a tree. You know, one of the things that just grinds my gears, or I can't stand, is when somebody talks something up really big especially if I had no expectations of what that thing is. Like maybe there's a movie that comes out and I, I see a preview or I hear about it and I think to myself, cool, I'd watch that. Then I meet up with somebody and they tell me how great this said movie is. They tell me how funny the movie is or how great the CGI is or how good such and such actor is. The reality getting, uh, they, they really get my hopes up for, for the movie. Then I go see the movie and it's, it's pretty underwhelming. I had such high expectations of what was to come, and yet I'm underwhelmed. For so long, first century Jews have awaited the coming of the Son of Man, one that will come and restore all right in the world. He will make moral correction, evil will be destroyed, and judgment will happen, and his people will be saved. And to some extent, their assumptions weren't misinformed. We look back into Isaiah 11, where the coming of the Messiah was described as triumphant. He was going to come and do what past kings have failed to do. God will gather all of his people and the evil one will be destroyed. In Isaiah 11, it says, He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In 13, jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not, be har- shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the, the people of the east, and they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongues of the seas of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in, sand, across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria to the remnant that remains of his people, and there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So they look, the Jews look to this Old Testament and say, the Messiah is supposed to come triumphantly. This is exciting news for them. They will finally get what they longed for. But then Jesus comes, and it's not exactly what they expected. The triumphal entry wasn't what they had read about. The thing of the kingdom they were hoping for is Yet to come, but the kingdom has begun. So, so the reality is, is what they long hoped for in the future, or is coming in the future. But the difference is this, Christ's entire life of obedience, his atoning death and resurrection and ascension are the means by which he inaugurated the kingdom of God. The works of Christ are what began the kingdom here. And to the Jews, this seemed like a small little mustard seed, almost insignificant. because they were expecting this triumphal entry where it would unify the church and it would rid the world of evil. But it wasn't so. One of the most important events in the bringing of the kingdom 
is Jesus' encounter with the devil in the wilderness. In the, hardened, in the garden in Genesis, the first Adam succumbed to the temptation and fell to sin, in turn losing our citizenship in the kingdom. A new Adam came. This one was our savior. One that in the wilderness would not succumb to temptation or sin, but he would continue to live a perfect life. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded, allowing for his people to rule and reign with him forever, as Christ has always intended. The problem was that the Jews were just severely underwhelmed by what that looked like to them. They were ready to just get rid of all the evil in the world. This wasn't your typical understanding of how the king would rule the world. It was in, in small and insignificant to them. And the Jews longed for what they thought was supposed to be the kingdom now, but actually for the future kingdom. We long for the future kingdom. And yet the kingdom was inaugurated at the coming of Jesus. All that we long for in the future kingdom has already started in Jesus. We don't have to long for future ex, ex, for a future experience in the kingdom now. We don't have to long for a future kingdom for the future to, in order to experience the kingdom now. Basically, we can experience Jesus now. We don't have to long, we don't have to wait. Jesus has reigned in our hearts if we are of him. If we are in Christ, the kingdom is present now. It's present in Jesus' healing and preaching of the gospel in Matthew 2, or when he was going to the synagogues in Matthew 9, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, or in Matthew 11, when he was healing the lame and the blind and preaching the gospel of the kingdom to them. If Christ has saved you and me, the kingdom has begun a reign in our hearts already. God's work reveals the inauguration of the kingdom here, and we see that in his preaching of the gospel. We live in the world that day by day, thousands of people are dying of coronavirus. And I know you're probably tired of hearing about it. All we hear about right now. The news is flooded with it. That's all we talk about in our homes. That's all anybody's talking about. The TV's talking about it. Everything's canceled. We can't have our normal life. I've heard from many people older than me that, that they themselves have never experienced anything like this. Law enforcement is seeing a rise in domestic violence as families are now required to spend time together. Divorce is increasing. Drugs and alcohol and pornography have become outlets for comfort when their livelihoods have changed. People are losing parents and grandparents and children. People are pointing fingers to who is to blame. The market's crashing. People are losing jobs. This evil in this world is not getting smaller, and yet you're telling me, or I'm telling you, and Jesus is telling you that the kingdom's here. When we can't see or feel the kingdom that has already begun, and when we long for a future hope, what do we do? Will we cling to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? We don't cling to our fears. We don't cling to flesh. We don't cling to our struggles or sins. We cling to Christ. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, resurrection of Jesus reminds us that he is sufficient for all of our longing. Jesus, our Lord, has brought us into his kingdom already. We are already the sons of the kingdom as people in Christ. And though this mustard seed is small and to the Jews seemingly insignificant, it's not. It's a big deal. It's only just the beginning, though. 
So we have to ask ourselves, if, if the kingdom is already here, if we know about the Bible that tells us that the kingdom's reign will take all uh, evil from the world, if the kingdom's already here, why is there still evil? The answer to that question is found in the unstoppable, slow growth of the mustard seed and leaven. Though the kingdom was inaugurated in Jesus already, the completion of the kingdom is not yet. Jesus is not finished. We continue to look forward and have hope in the future of the kingdom. He is not finished. Let's not forget that God is still growing his church. The gospel still goes out to the ends of the earth. In a place like the Middle East where jihadists are lining up Christians and beheading them for, the church, for their Christian belief, the church is still growing. Or in Iraq where Kurdish Christian churches are being planted or people risking their lives to just read the Bible in North Korea where Jesus grows his kingdom there too. When looking at history, we, we would be a fool to think that Jesus did not thrive in, the most, in, in some of the most adverse conditions. The parable of the mustard seed and leaven is, is, is telling us that the kingdom is small, but the growth of the kingdom cannot be stopped. God will grow his kingdom, and he will continue to do so to the ends of the age. Though the kingdom is not yet, it does not mean the kingdom is canceled. The consummation of the kingdom is coming. But for now, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus continues in the parable of the weeds to further explain what has happened. This is the point where he gets to the disciples. We jump back and read through verse 39 through 43. It says this, And the enemy who sowed the seed sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, all cause of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. When Jesus revealed this parable to the crowds, he says to the servant, he says the servant went to the farmer and asked if they wanted to pull the weeds. And the farmer tells them, no, he wants them to let the weeds grow fully so that he can know how to, we, we, we can, it, it could be, they could be separated when they, they fully are revealed. <laughs> now, I'm not going to lie to you. I spent a long time trying to figure out the difference between a Darnell weed and a, and a wheat. The Darnell weed is the one that's talked about in this passage. Um, I don't know anything about farming. My name's not Farmer John or Farmer Rudolph. But, um, but I know how to use Google and images too. And so I spent a long time Googling how to tell the difference between a Darnell weed and a wheat. And it took a long time. And I come up to this, this picture of, it was pretty pitiful of a drawing that was specifically meant to be able to tell you and show you what the difference between a wheat and a wheat is. Don't judge me if this is wrong, because it could be wrong, it was pitiful. Yeah, it was on Google, so it could totally be wrong. But I'm telling you, the only thing that I could tell a difference was these long hairs that came out of the tips of the weeds, or the wheat, sorry. Both weeds and wheat are long and skinny, and at the top, they have this rattlesnake-style rattle-looking thing. 
They both go brown. They both have roots. It was, it was a common understanding at that time that the weeds and the wheat were just similar. This isn't new to the people when he's telling the crowds to not pull it up. The implication of them looking the same, though, is often why people say they shouldn't pull up the weeds. But I would, ar- I would like to argue something a little different. It's not because they look the same, but it's, be- it's the roots that the- that- that's the problem with the Darnell weed. Darnell weeds are often entangling themselves at the root with other wheat and grains, closely clinging to that of the similar-looking useful crop, the wheat. The reality is that weeds are weeds, and oftentimes you can tell who weeds are. We don't have to look far to be able to understand what a weed is in this life. Turn on the TV if you want to know what a weed is. Go onto the internet or stalk someone's Facebook. In our culture, we're not really hiding anything. We can tell the difference. I'm not telling you to go around deeming people weeds. That was often the work of the Pharisees. Christians' implication for the understanding of how to live in this world is different than just deeming those weeds. In the midst of weeds, wheat are called to be ambassadors for Christ. Proclaimers of the one true God and his grace and mercy. We are here to bear fruit. And in the midst of bearing fruit, we may also impact someone else around us. Now, in the understanding of the sim. Uh, understanding of this symbolism breaks down if we believe that we can change something from one thing to the other. We know that tares can never be wheat and wheat can never be tares realistically. But the sons of the evil one can be transformed into the sons of the kingdom. That's the gospel. Ephesians 2, Paul says that we believers were by nature the children of wrath, even at the rest. So realistically, tares can't become wheat. Salvation gives a new nature to the believer and turns what was once sons of the evil one to children of God. In the spiritual sense, we were all wheat. We were all tares. All wheat were tares at one point until the grace of Christ saved you and me and made us his. Knowing that it is Christ who makes tares into wheat, it is not your job to try to make tares produce something that they cannot. We can't do it. We are not in the business of reaping the unholy from the world. In this world, we are not called to be the judge, to to judge the sentences to death. We do not lead any type of military crusade that exiles the lost. Teach the gospel and live examples of Christ, as examples of Christ. Without salvation from Christ, tares can only produce what tares already produce. We read again in verse 41 through 43, Then the Son of Man will send his angels. And they, were, they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I heard a story once about a guy. Uh, he was opening up a new store. He was super excited about opening up this new store. Um, and uh, a friend of his was also super excited about him opening up this new store. 
Um, so excited that this friend sends him a bouquet of flowers just as a con- congratulations. But the, the flowers arrived at the, the new business site and the owner read the card inscribed, rest in peace. The angry owner called the florist to complain after he told the florist of the obvious mistake and how angry he was. The florist said, sir, I'm really sorry for the mistake, but rather than getting angry, you should imagine this. Somewhere there is a funeral taking place today and they have flowers with a note that reads, congratulations on your new location. If we believe the message sent by contemporary media, the new location of everyone who dies is heaven. At first glance, popular polls seem to disagree with this, though. A a large majority of Americans believe in an existence of hell. However, in that exact same poll, it shows that almost no one thinks he or she is actually going there. Everyone hopes for heaven. And there will come a day when Jesus returns. Just as Jesus is telling him here, he will send his reapers who are the angels and they will gather out all causes of lawbreakers and sins. The wheat will be separated from the tares. This will be judgment day at the end of the age. The sons of the devil will be gathered and burned. Forever hell will be their dwelling place. They will be cast into the fiery furnace. A frightening picture of what this will look like. Jesus is very clear here. Those who are not of Christ on judgment day will have a sure future in hell. But it doesn't stop there. In contrast to the sons of the devil, the sons of the kingdom will will not be left alone to the fiery trials. We see this in Daniel 12 when Daniel predicts the end of times. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who who has charged of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been before. Has there uh, was such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Jesus was quoting the Old Testament here. God's people have a hope for the future. Colossians 1.5 said that this hope is laid up for you in heaven. Have we ever asked the question or have we ever asked us our, ourselves what we thought the definition of hope is? I think if you thought about it a little critically, you might get the answer right, but um, think about how we use the word hope often. We often say, I hope I get this job or I hope I find a spouse or I hope this food is good. And the reality is that just isn't Christian hope at all. That hope is just hoping that something good happens to you. That would be comparable to somebody say that you have luck. They're not really Christian principles. Our hope is found in trusting and having confidence that that what we know is true will actually happen. And this hope is actually only found in Christ. We have hope because we read his word and Christ tells us what will actually happen. Our hope causes us to long for the future because it's promised and that promise will be kept. And we already talked about the past tense of hope in the kingdom inaugurated. We look back to the crucifixion of Christ. We found hope in the crucifixion of Christ. There's also a future hope. 
as our eyes gaze upon the heaven, as Daniel says, resurrection of the body and final judgment. We often think of our hope in Christ, but in times like these today, we're often thinking of, of our hope in the future. Gerhard, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I'm going to try. Gerhard Kersegen writes a hymn on this exact hope. It says this, There is a balm for every pain, a medicine for all sorrow. The eye turned back, backward to the cross and forward to the morrow. The morrow of the glory and the psalm when he shall come. The morrow of the harping and the palm, the welcome home. Meantime, in his beloved hands are ways, and on his heart the wandering heart at rest, and comfort for the weary one who lays his head upon his breast. At a time like this, where have we found our hope? It's, it's kind of weird at this time because all we can think about is the future right now. All of our conversations are what life will look like after this all blows over with coronavirus. Every morning I wake up wondering if today is the day they find the antivirus so everything can just go back to normal. I just look at my phone and scroll through 12 different news apps to see which one's lying to me. Some of you are probably thinking about when your job will start again and or when you get to go to the grocery store and be safe. Some of you are thinking when your kids will go back to school or when you will go back to school. Will your future plans be changed? And everything right now is, is just thinking about what's to come. I have to be honest with you guys um, in this time because this text has been extremely uh, convicting and, and encouraging at the same time to me. I've been kind of bummed, honestly, for the last month. The world is, is, is just so weird right now. I don't like hearing somebody tell me that quarantine is an indefinite amount of time. That's not an answer. I don't like the thought of my friends or family or any of you guys getting this illness, this virus. Yet through the study of God's word, he comforts his people. And that's what he did for me as I studied this text. I can look back to the crucifixion of Jesus and say, all that was needed has already been provided. I can look forward to the future and say, yet there is an even greater kingdom to come. In fact, at the end of the age, Jesus will come and bring forth the completion of his kingdom, one that God's people has long awaited for. God will make his people shine like the sun in the kingdom with him, which is what uh, verse 43 says in Matthew there. God will make all things new. And we will be dwelling in the new heavens and new earth forever if we are children's of, children of the kingdom. God's church will be cleansed. It will be renewed and perfected. Revelation 21.2 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. John Ames, the congregational minister of Gilead, concluded a journal written to his son just before he died. And it says, Augustine says the Lord loves each of us 
us and, and, as an only child. And that has to be true. He will wipe the tears from all faces. It takes nothing from the loveliness from the verse to say that, that it is exactly what is required to be done. Tears introduced by humanity's fall will be wiped away by the one who wept in the face of death at the tomb of Lazarus, whose soul was very sorrowful in Gethsemane and who cried out on the cross. Revelation 22.3 says, sum up the glory, uh, Revelation 22.3 sums up the glory of the new heaven and new earth with these words. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of, the, and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The biblical vision of hope is a longing for the just sovereignty of God, which will right all wrong, and, to, and which will finally make all tears cease and give our restless heart its final rest in the merciful arms of God. At the harvest, we who are of Christ will shine brightly, just like the Lord himself. And I want to conclude with this John Calvin quote. What a remarkable consolation. The sons of God who now lie covered in dust or are held in no estimation or are even loaded with reproaches will, the shine in full, will shine in full brightness as when the sky is serene and every cloud has been dispelled. Suffering will not last. The Lord will return. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for your grace and your love. God, we thank you for just reminding us of your kingdom. God, we thank you for Christ and the cross. God, I pray that you are magnified in our church, even in the midst of us not being able to meet. God, I pray that you are. Um, that people are finding their hope in you, that our church is finding their hope in you, God, that are comforted in these words. God, continue to grow your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.